on the web at wagp.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, Star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Great to be with you today. If you're joining us for the very first time, this is the Bible line. And for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. If you have a particular issue that you're struggling with in your personal life and you'd like biblical counsel on it or a challenge in your ministry or just understanding a passage of scripture, the lines are open. All you need to do is pick up the phone, call us. The local number is 525-1859-843-525-1859, or we have a toll-free number for our internet listeners, and that number is 877, the call letters WAGP 980. When you uh, call here on this uh cool winter day. Uh, You can uh, either dictate your question, or if you'd like, you can go on the air live, however you'd like to give it to us this morning. Rick, I think we already have a caller that's waiting. And I should add, too, that if you want to email your questions in, uh, you can do so at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Let's go to our first caller. All right, indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning. Yeah, thanks for calling. Doing Doing well. Thank you for calling today. How can we help? Well, first, I just want to tell you I really appreciate I listen to you frequently, and I'm always uh, very pleased with you sticking with the Word of God. Um, What I was curious, uh, I've been paying my tithes with cash and have not. I, I just think that I wonder if there, I just have this thing in the back of my head, like how um, David would say, uh, he don't want to, he doesn't want to give to the Lord if it doesn't cost him. Sure. If if it doesn't cost him something to give to the Lord. So I was, I have been giving to the Lord um, without declaring it, and just as, uh, as, just giving the cash and not declaring it, not writing it off. Tell me what you think about that. Well, it's a it's a fair question. Uh, as you probably know, the there's a standard deduction that the government gives to people, uh, whether they give a penny or not. Um, I don't know what it is right now. I, I think it was $5,000 last year. Um, so the government says, well, we're going to give you credit like you gave $5,000. 
Uh, that's the standard deduction. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's what it is. Uh, Rick, maybe you can Google it. I don't have a computer in front of me, but I just have my Bible every week, and he can, uh, he can check that. But here's the, here's the general principle. What I normally tell people to do is uh, to, to write a check. Uh, write a check when you give for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, it gives you a physical record of what you actually gave in the course of the year. Uh, two, it becomes kind of a built-in check system, a self-audit system, a self-audit system at the end of the year. So, when I get, for instance, my um, tithing and offering statement from Community Bible Church every year, I can match all the checks that I've written to make sure that the statement reflects what I actually gave, and they've never been wrong. Uh, but two, that's that's good stewardship, and that's a good built-in check system. Uh, so that uh, it holds all bookkeeping and all bookkeepers accountable in whatever, you know, church that you're attending. But uh, most people, if they are giving, uh, here it is, what did you come up with, Rick? Well, Uh, it looks like uh, for 2014, a single individual, the uh, standard deduction will be 6,200. For a head of household, 9,100. Married, filing jointly, 12,400. Or if you're ma- married and filing separately, it'll be 6200 All right. Now, a lot of people, too, itemize their deductions, and uh, they may not meet the standard deduction, but because they want to itemize other deductions that they have, uh, they still come out ahead stewardship-wise. And that's the ultimate issue here. You know, sometimes people have said to me, well, I don't want to use an offering envelope because I don't know, I don't want anyone to know what I am giving. And I appreciate that spirit. And the Lord obviously dealt with, you know, hypocrites in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, who do three things, pray, give, and fast to be seen by men. And of course, when uh, they would give, you know, they'd blow their little trumpets and when they'd pray and when they'd give, they'd put in large amounts of change through the, you know, receptacles there at the uh, temple, all, of course, to be seen by men uh, because they want people to take notice of what they're giving. Uh, I don't think when you write a check and you put it in an offering envelope and you put it in the bag um, and, you know, a couple of people who handle money and every church should always have at least two people uh, who are involved in that process, um, that they are going to say, oh, wow, look what Joe Blow gave. And, um, you know, that that's not the spirit of it. And for you to be able to give and to have a written record, I think is important. And you may find at the end of the year, because you get more tax money back from the government because of the way you gave and you were a- able to itemize and follow your deductions, that in reality, um, you can give more. You know, render to Caesars the things that are Caesars and to God the things that are God. So we're called to pay tax, but don't pay any more tax than you need to pay. Um, So, again, the starting point for giving, I believe, is the tenth. If God put $100 in your pocket this week, then you give 10. If he put $1,000 in your pocket this week, then you give 100. You give a, a tenth of the increase of what God's entrusted. But giving, of course, is not simply an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart as well. So God speaks not just of tithes, but of tithes and offerings. And so sometimes God would uh, move us and, and you know burden us to give above and beyond the tithe. 
uh, and that's important to be sensitive to the Spirit of God. Ultimately, it's all His money anyway. It's not like a 90-10% relationship. Well, 90% of it is is mine and 10% is God's. It's all His. And we'll give an account someday, not just for whether we gave 10%, but how we spent all of the money that God entrusted to us. And so, again, I appreciate the question. And I appreciate the spirit of what you're asking because you, you, want to, you want to give where you have the opportunity to give. And so in the case that you uh, quote, when David is uh, in need of a threshing floor and someone wants, a rumba wants to give it to the king, he says, no, you know, I, I, I want to pay for it because I want my gift to be to the Lord and I, I want it to cost me something as an expression of love. And, and that's the overall spirit I'm hearing from you. And I, and I appreciate that so much. All right, uh, Rick, I think we have another caller who's waiting on the line. And if you'd like to get through this morning, the number is 525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. All right. We've got David on line too. Thanks for holding. Good morning. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Good morning. Um, I've been studying Matthew, and I've, I've gotten to the, the passage where Jesus is, is telling his disciples where to set up the Passover. They ask him first, where do you want us to set up the Passover, for, where you will eat the Passover? And he tells them to go to a certain man, and he has the upper room all prepared. Now, I'm, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking that Christ already has this predetermined because he knows who's going to betray him, and perhaps Judas would even lead the Jews to arrest him there in the upper room had Judas known where they were going. Am I, am I on the right trail here or, or, or not, Pastor Brogy? Well, people have taken—it's an interesting question you have. People have taken that passage in one of two ways. Um, you know, the Lord gave some specific instructions as to the identity of the man, and when you see this, well, you know, okay— uh, that, that, that's, that's the deal. Um, that's the place where we're going to celebrate the, the Passover. Some people think that Jesus had prearranged it with the owner of the house. Uh, and I suppose that's possible. Um, or they would say that this is just the Lord's omniscience functioning. Uh, he knows who they're going to encounter, just like when he tells Peter uh, to pay the tax. He says, well, actually, what I want you to do is I want you to go fishing, Peter. And first time you throw the hook in the water, a fish is going to bite. And that's no ordinary fish. That's obviously a fish that I know everything about. I knew when that fish swallowed a coin when someone dropped it out of their pocket one day and he swallowed it up and and I'm uh, uh, omniscient in that way and I'm, I'm over all of my creation. I'm going to command that fish to go right to your hook and when you pull it out, open out the fish and you'll find a stater and you pay your tax of mine. Um, that's certainly a display of the Lord's omniscience. This particular passage is debatable by some whether this was prearranged or a display of his omniscience. I take it is from when, when I read through these gospel accounts and the activity and what goes down here in the last week of the Lord's life. Uh, I don't think he had time to prearrange anything. And I take it that this is just a display of his omniscience. And so that he didn't prearrange this with the owner of the home, but he knew in advance uh, that he would, they would find such a man and, and they could ask him and it would be given to him. So, um, and what did you mean about uh, Judas's betrayal, caller? Um, no, what I meant was if, if, you know, if Judas had foreknowledge of where, where the Passover would be eaten, 
perhaps he may have led the Jews to arrest Christ there, other than at the at the, at the Mount of Olives or, um, or Gethsemane. Yeah, well, literally, the devil is not entered into um, Judas until the Lord, you know, gives him uh, a piece of the sop, and you know, he said, "Truly, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me." and they're deeply grieved. Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, no, the one who dips his hand in the bowl, he's the one who's going to betray me, um, and so on. And um, Judas, who was betraying him, said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. And he said, you have said it yourself. And while they were eating and they took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. He said, you know, take, eat, this is my body. And he'd given the cup and so forth. And, and so literally the devil enters into uh, Judas, and at that point, he goes on and he betrays him. In fact, prior to that, a little bit earlier in the count, it says, then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot, uh, to differentiate him from another disciple called Judas, went, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to deliver me up to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of gold. And from then on, he began looking for an opportunity to betray him. And so I don't think he had it fixed in his mind exactly when this was going to go down. And then when, you know, he he's obviously made a decision in his heart and he's opened himself up to evil, but literally the devil comes in and dwells Judas. You know, people have been indwelt by demons before and they still are to this day, but uh, this was the head demon uh, who comes and indwells Judas. And from then on, he has a clear, specific plan in which to kill him. And then he goes out and, you know, he gets the needed people and they meet there in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, um, you know, to say that the Lord was trying to hide this from Judas, look, it was going to go down. He didn't have to hide anything from him. Um, it was going to go down and it was going to go down under the Lord's timetable, under his sovereign plan. And uh, other attempts to take Jesus down in the past always failed because Jesus said it was not yet my hour. But as you read John's gospel that also records these events, he says, now's the time. This is the hour of darkness. The time has arrived. And that's when Judas is really given permission and opportunity and no doubt a plan with the help of the evil one himself because he opened himself up to that evil one. Anyway, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, you know, we get into details on things the Bible does not address and we can speculate. So best thing to do is just to uh, uh, go clearly with what is spelled out. Uh, good question. Let's go to the next one. I think we have another live caller who's waiting. If you want to call us, the number locally, 525-1859, or our toll-free number for our Internet listeners, 877-WAGP-980. Jeffrey standing by on line three. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you, Dr. Brogan. Rick? Yeah. Hey, thanks for calling today, Jeff. Hey, I attend a college, and I'm currently taking a uh, gender women's studies class. Yes. And the focus is women in religion. And so far, we've studied Judaism and Christianity. Um, so yesterday, the issue arose concerning the gender of God, and I stated my position that uh, God is spirit, but that Moses and the authors of the Bible were right to refer to God as male, and that the authors did so for reasons further than just because you know, the language is androcentric. And so um, the response I received from the professor was that God made man and woman in his image, as it says in Genesis 1.27, and that he also said that the word Shekinah, in reference to the Shekinah glory of God, is a feminine word. So I was hoping uh, to maybe get your position on the matter, 
because my professor wants to speak more about it tomorrow. And um, any references from the Torah and the Bible will be helpful. Thanks. Well, it's a, it's a good question, and you know we live in a day when people want to mix roles and blend roles and obliterate differences that God has made. Uh, God created them male and female. He underscores that while they're both made in the image of God, he created them male and female. He didn't create them gender neutral. And this is a big deal. This is a big deal on college campuses all across America now. Uh, there are students now who don't want to be able to put down in the form, check male or female. They want a third alternative, a genderless uh, check, so to speak, so that they don't even have to acknowledge it or so that they have opportunity. One of the big issues right now in some South Carolina universities are to have gender-neutral dorms, which basically means uh, even if you don't know what you are, which is absolutely ridiculous and sheer folly, um, then, you know, you can, you can be in whatever dorm you want to be. Um, this is how bad it has gotten in our day. So with that said, you're right on track. God has revealed himself with the um, male pronoun. Now, let me just say there are sometimes theophanies of God there are sometimes, a theophany is when God reveals himself in some physical manifestation. It might be the cloud by day, or it might be the pillar of fire by night. Interestingly, the word Shekinah, first of all, never appears anywhere in the Bible. That is a theological term, much like the word Trinity. Uh, so, yes, the Hebrew word Shekinah is a feminine word, but it's not a biblical word. It's not in the text. What is in the text is the cloud that appears by day and the pillar of fire that appears by night. And the Hebrew word for cloud and the Hebrew word for fire are both masculine gender. Now, even if they were feminine gender, it wouldn't change anything because sometimes objects or things are given a particular gender uh, that is not saying anything necessarily about God. Uh, just like we do this in English, when we refer to our boats, we don't usually refer the boats to a boat with a he pronoun, but with a she. Don't ask me why, we just do. Um, in some languages of the wor world, all of the nouns, like Greek, for instance, are um, classified as masculine, feminine, or neuter. Um, and again, some of the history behind some of those, when languages develop, you know, who, who knows, you know, but that doesn't say anything per se uh, about, say, the object or uh, or about um, the, the a whatever aspect about God that we're referring to. But when God is referred to directly, he's always referred to with a masculine pronoun. And remember, it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And God made it very clear that Adam is the head. It doesn't mean that he's the dictator, but that he's the head. And so God had an order in his, in his creation. And the Apostle Paul refers to this later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he's talking about um, 
how things should go down in the church. And he says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman. And God is referring to the father is the head of Christ. He's not saying that Jesus is any less God than the father, but the father is the head over the Lord Jesus just as the man is the head over the woman. So when we speak of headship and maleness and things like that, we're not diminishing that a woman is equally made in the image of God and equally valuable and equally significant in, uh, in, in the sight of God Almighty. So we're not diminishing that. We're just noting differences. When Jesus came in the incarnation, he didn't come as a woman to die on a cross. And they crucified women, by the way, just like they crucified men. We don't usually think of it in those terms, but they did. They crucified women who are guilty of capital punishment crimes, just like they crucified men. Um, But he didn't come as a woman. He came as a man. And he did for a reason. And that, again, is not to diminish women uh, any more than Christ's submission to the Father's headship is to diminish his deity. Um, so your professor who wants to make a gender-neutral God is uh, really playing with the Scriptures. Peter would say there are people who interpret the Scriptures to their own destruction. And he's trying to make the Scriptures politically correct. And, you know, it's the same thing with homosexuality, you know, and all these other sins. that They want to make these issues not of—they want to make homosexuality not an issue of morality, but an issue of genetics, that it's, uh, it's, it's an issue of how God created me and how God made me. Well, listen, if it is an issue of genetics, and it's not, but if it were, then they would be right in affirming that homosexuals should have the same rights as any minority status. But it's not an issue of genetics. And the Attorney General of the United States did a wicked thing this week, as did our president, as did our vice president in the last few years with some of the decisions that they're making. They're doing something that God calls an abomination. So let's not soften it. It's a, it's a wicked thing that they are doing in promoting homosexual rights, along with many Republican and Democratic senators and congressmen as well. It's a wicked thing. And it's an evil thing because this is not an issue of genetics. This is an issue of morality. And now he's trying to create a God in his own image. And he's going against the clear dictates of scripture. And um, your professor is just, well, he's out to lunch. I don't know how else to say it without, I'm not trying to be mean. I I would have compassion for him. I would pray for his soul. I'd be respectful, but he's out to lunch. Anyway, let's go to the next question. Someone is waiting. We do indeed have another caller. Thanks for holding another David from Buford, I believe. How are you this morning? Great. How are you guys? Doing well, thank you. Uh, I just, a very general question for you, Pastor. Um, I wonder if you can talk about the fruit in John uh, 15 verses 1 through 5. Yes. And uh, what does that look like? What is that fruit supposed to look like? And then maybe a little deeper uh, in verse 6 when, um, when Jesus says that uh, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away uh, and cast them into the fire, they are burned. Is that the fruit or are those the individual? It's a good question. Um, this is a passage that some of my Arminian friends who teach, of course, that one can lose their salvation is they'll use this passage of scripture to try to, uh, to, to try to take that position. And by the way, if, uh, if this call is interested, they can go online to search the scriptures.org. And we have a phone app now too, for Android and Apple phones. 
And if they go to the Search the Scriptures website, they can click on a book of the Bible, and I've preached through every single verse of the Gospel of John, and I've preached through John 15, and you can hear an hour-long message on verses 1 through 8. Um, but Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that he may, it may bear more fruit. Uh, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So he's speaking to people who are already clean, uh, through the word, because the word is the instrument the spirit of God uses to bring about faith and to bring about conversion in such that Peter can later write that you're born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. Uh, People say, well, am I born again by the spirit or am I born again by the word? Well, both. Uh, The spirit of God uses the word of God to to bring about conversion, just as the spirit of God today uses the word of God to grow us and to sanctify us. And so real spiritual growth that produces genuine fruit is a byproduct of the Holy Spirit working in us in accordance with the Word of God because He doesn't function in a vacuum. And of course, if you read the last verse of chapter 14, He said, Let us arise and go from here. And you discover where they are headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. Between those two points, they are in the midst of a vineyard. And the Lord is using the uh, vineyard around him to teach a biblical truth. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides or lives in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the emphasis of the text is dealing with people who know the Lord, who are clean already because of the word. And he's really giving them and us by application instruction on how to be successful in the Christian life, that without Christ, we can do nothing, that we need the Holy Spirit living in us. When he, the spirit of truth comes, Jesus will later say here in just a moment in the 16th chapter, and he's already mentioned Uh, uh, that I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper and that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not hold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and, uh, and will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So on the one hand, he he gives this promise of the Holy Spirit coming to us. And he already said that much earlier in his ministry in John 7 on that great day of the feast when he stood up and he said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds a parathetical note. He said, these things he spoke concerning the spirit who was not yet given because Christ was not yet glorified. So here in the upper room that night, the Lord is pointing them towards the promise of the spirit. And as they leave the upper room, he's reminding of them of that same truth. Uh, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And he can say, I'm going to come to you. Well, does Jesus come to us in a, you know, 190 pound body, whatever he weighed? And of course not. But because the members of the Godhead are inseparable, the New Testament can affirm affirm that we're indwelt by both God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now, the principal accent in the New Testament in terms of our sanctification is given to the Spirit. 
But because you cannot dissect God and separate the members of the Trinity because they're inseparable, uh, all three are affirmed in the New Testament as literally indwelling the believer. But, uh, and that's why Jesus can say, look, without me, you can do nothing. But he's already revealed that the way you do what I want you to do is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, right before the ascension, he says, listen, I want you to go and preach the gospel and repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations, but don't even leave Jerusalem until you are clothed with the Spirit on high, because without him, we can do nothing. And then he makes this statement, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast him them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish. So, again, he's using an agricultural illustration to teach a basic truth. A vineyard has a, a vine dresser, and the vine dresser knows how to prune the uh, vines in order to produce the maximum amount of fruit. If uh, there's a piece of dead wood, then the dead wood is discarded. Why? Because it's not good for anything. You can't even make a, a, you know, a hook out of a piece of uh, a vine wood. It's only good for kindling. You just throw it away. It's, it's burned in the fire. And so it's, it's really a picture in many respects of what happens to the unbeliever. And Jesus uses this same uh, metaphor in uh, Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 7, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. He says, um, uh, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Of course not. Even so, every good tree, he says, bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. That's a basic um assumption that you can bank on. If a tree is bad at its core, it doesn't matter how much you prune it or try to dress it up. It's not going to produce good fruit. I remember growing up in New England and we had three apple trees in our yard and uh, there was a, a man from Italy who was a mason and he was doing some masonry work for my dad. And he also was a great, uh, you know, horticulturists of sorts. And he said to my dad, all those apple trees, they're no good. Just, just tear them down. Just plant some new ones. But my dad didn't want to do that because he liked those trees. And for the next 30 years, we had rotten apples because they were just bad. And, um, and eventually they, they, they fell down. And so a good tree can't produce bad fruit. If the tree is healthy in its core and nature, it's only going to produce good fruit. And the opposite is true as well. So he says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And fruit, as Jesus describes it, is more than outward. And to prove that, he doesn't go for some ho-hum, everyday kind of testimony. He goes for the most dramatic testimony that you could come and think of. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we preach or prophesy in your name, and your name cast out demons, and your name perform miracles? Now, you know, people today who prophesied in Jesus' name and cast out demons and did miracles in his name, we'd say, wow, that's a spirit anointed. That's a marvelously blessed ministry of God. When in reality, Jesus said, no, I, I never knew them. Depart from me. Uh, an unbeliever can even do a miracle if he's inspired by the evil one and even deceived by him thinking that he's an agent of God. 
the devil has false prophets. The devil um, can do all kinds of things. There are unbelievers in Acts, the seven sons of Sceva, who attempt to cast out demons. There were exorcists that, um, you know, would sometimes, as unbelievers, uh, see success. And the devil will play games sometimes in order to authenticate false teaching. So when we look at fruit and we ask, what is it? Well, Matthew 7, it's, among other things, sound teaching versus evil teaching. And he'll make that clear a little bit later in Matthew 10. Fruit also is described in the Bible as the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. In other words, the character of Christ. Uh, That is real evidence of fruit. And there's another way in which it's used a little bit later in this same chapter when he will say, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. And so Jesus spoke not just of um, the fruit of the Spirit, but going and bearing fruit. And he's going to commission them to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. So another aspect of fruit is the fruit of another believer, someone who who comes to, to faith in Christ. And God uses us in different capacities in that way. Earlier in John's gospel, he says in John 4, look, you just entered into someone else's work who had sown the seed and nurtured the ground and you harvested it. And some of us are involved in the, in, in the, in the, in the former role and some in the latter, but all of us can be involved in, in going in, in making fruit making converts of all nations. Good question. I wish we could spend more time on it, but go to the John 15 message and listen to the whole thing. And I, and I go through different positions people have taken and why they don't fit the flow of John 15. And, and I think it will make even more sense to you. Let's go to our next caller, Rick. We have Stacy and Hilton standing by. Uh, Hilton had rather standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Well, thank you. Thanks for calling. How can I help? I actually have two questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, I was talking to someone, and they asked me if I had ever heard of Mark Hamby. They said that uh, they got a book from someone, the person accidentally mistook this person's name, but they read it, and he talks about you know going to churches and saying to a woman, I rebuke your tumor, et cetera, et cetera. But he asked their pastors and other pastors, and nobody knew of him. But I was wondering if you've ever heard of Mark Hamby. Uh, the name doesn't ring a bell. Um, but if what you are saying, and I never uh, second-guess people, or I, I don't want to um, say, well, this is what this man believes, unless I do my personal research. So I'm not making any comments about Mark Hamby. But if a man talks about, you know, rebuking tumors and things like that, that that's that's pretty you, you, uh, that's pretty bizarre. I, I, don't, I don't think that uh, if we're talking about the same Mark Hamby, remember Mark Hamby? He came to our oh, church. Oh, Lamplighter Ministries. Yeah. Oh, that Mark Hamby. No, I can't. I don't think that's. No, him. I don't think so either. If if that's the same individual that came to our church for a home education conference, I don't know how many Mark Hambys there are out there, but um, then uh, I, I guarantee it's not the same fella. Uh, right. So, and we're talking about now the president of Lamplighter Ministries. But it That's sounds. Who I thought it was, but I'm like, no, that can't be him. It sounds like you're talking about some Pentecostal guy, right? Um, and it may be that there's more than one guy named Mark Hamby. 
I, I don't know. There's um, there's a lot of people with similar names. I remember Adrian Rogers being all bent out of shape that there was another Adrian Rogers out there, and <laughs> he didn't represent him well, I promise you. Uh, so, um, But the Mark Lamb, uh, Hamby from Lamplighter Ministries, he's, he's a good fella, and, and that's not his theology. Um, so anyway, what was your second question? My second question is, is uh, I know all this stuff, as you pointed out, with the president, the vice president, the attorney general, with the uh, promoting homosexuality, and, of course, at the Grammy Awards, having that big ceremony, marrying same-sex and uh, different-sex couples uh, during a, the Grammy Awards. I know it's, you know, just being put out there. Uh I know that a lot of people get upset, you know, like in Nevada, saying that the officials are not going to enforce the uh, ban on same-sex marriage. And people say, well, you know, the people voted. But some will also say, well, yeah, people, if they could have voted, they could have voted, you know, to keep slavery legal. Uh, my my question is, is I know it's, it's actually a two-parter. I'm assuming it's just because is 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 immoral, and that's that's what makes it different from saying, you know, uh, the slavery thing. But the other thing is, is, the Bible says that homosexuality is an abomination, and it lists a couple of other sins. I was wondering if you could speak on that, and also, what makes it? What does it mean to be an abomination, and what are the other sins that are are called abominations? Well, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, for instance, God refers to bestiality as an abomination. Um, you know, so when you read a statement like that, you obviously know that God's not too pleased with it. And if you just take out your concordance and look up the word abomination, you'll see that it is always used in reference to moral issues and moral issues that are binding throughout the ages. The moral law of God never changes. So some people will say, well, you know, bestiality is not mentioned in the New Testament. Maybe it's okay with God. God only has to say something once for him to be against it. And God calls for a man to lie with a man, for instance, an abomination. He only had to say it once. Some things he said more than once and spells it out in even more detail. And he certainly does that with homosexuality. Homosexuality is not an issue of genetics. And that is what people are making it. This is what our politicians are making it. They're saying, listen, this is the way God made me is the argument. This is the way I was created by God, or I discovered I was created by God this way. It is not an issue of genetics. It is an issue of morality. Homosexuality is part of God's moral code. And he said for a man to lie with a man is to do something that is unnatural. It's not the way God created people. And there are certainly folks who struggle with homosexuality, who sometimes are predisposed um, to this sin where they've had stumbling blocks put in their life. Uh, maybe a young man who's sodomized at four or five and feels all this shame and doesn't know how to deal with it. But again, even there where sin abounds, Grace abounds all the more. We have grace that is greater than all our sin, as the old hymn says. And so God can help and save anyone. And so when the Lord says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he doesn't mince words, he, he could not have said it any plainer. He said, do not be deceived. 
Um, He has just said, don't you know the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Period. So, you know, sometimes we pick on homosexuals, but we also need to remind people that fornication, premarital sex, adultery, extramarital sex are equally sinful, just like drunkenness is. People say, well, I get drunk, you know, I like to get wasted, and I like to go out and party, but as long as I don't hurt anybody, I don't think God is against it. Yes, he is. God is against it. And God can reach out and save anyone, but if we lower the standard and we say, well, this is no longer true. Franklin Graham came out um, this past week in his magazine, Decision Magazine, which his father started many years ago. And the thrust of the lead article basically is that the evangelical church is now silent on homosexuality. And I think for the most part, he is right. People are afraid to touch it. But listen, we have to touch it. We have to address this issue because the law of God is the schoolmaster, the tutor to lead us to faith in Christ. So we lower the standard by redefining sin. So homosexuality is just, you know, uh, misplaced father love or the way God created me or an alternative sexuality that is legitimate. And it's not. It is part of the moral law of God. And when we lower the standard... We are going to guess what God has plainly said. Now, I really believe that we are in the last of the last days because Jesus likened his return from heaven to the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And the days of Noah were, were days of, you know, moral permissiveness. And the days of Lot were days of moral perversion. And that's the day that we're living in, and it's accelerating at an incredible rate. And people are now saying things in public and on television about sexual immorality of every type, just very flippantly, and and it seems very acceptingly by the culture at large because we're no longer embarrassed by some of these things because we have become so attached to these things. And as I preached in Romans chapter one, and we're in the book of Romans right now, uh, moral perversion is always preceded by moral permissiveness. And so when a culture accepts premarital sex and extramarital sex as a standard acceptable behavior, and when a culture will entertain themselves on those things, though they may not initially do those things, when they entertain themselves in those things, they are giving endorsement to those things. And so when a culture becomes so immune to what God has said, then they will accept all kinds of moral perversion. And so, you know, when I made statements 20 years ago that they would be passing laws in favor of homosexuality, people laughed at me and said I was out to lunch. And then they began to create laws not against this behavior, which is what Paul tells Timothy is to be done. He calls homosexuality that we we write laws against them just like we do against kidnappers and murderers and, and so forth. And he includes homosexuals in that. Now we're writing laws in favor of this behavior. And so now the Attorney General of the United States came out last week and said, we don't care what the states are going to do. We're going to, you know, honor the federal law uh, and federal mandates, um, and we're going to, you know, recognize homosexual couples. He has no authority to do that. 
he has the authority to enforce the law, not to make up laws and not to ignore states' rights. And, you know, but this is, this is a problem in our day. You know, my son right now, I have a son who's at USC, and he was on the cover yesterday of the Daily Gamecock over an issue that he's been fighting at the university, and the head of the uh, article was something to the effect uh, uh, colleges in South Carolina are mandated to teach the Constitution. USC does not obey the law. And so there was actually a law on the books that first went in in the 1920s, was reaffirmed in the 50s, and restated specifically again in 1998 that every university of higher learning in the state of South Carolina must teach uh, two semesters um, to every student in order to graduate uh, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, and the Federalist Papers. And the president of USC just blows that off and says, well, you know, this is an old law written in the 20s. Doesn't note that it was uh, written in the, um, you know, reaffirmed in 1998. And so he just blows it off like it's no big deal um, that he can do what he wants. He says, well, it's an antiquated law. It's a law in the books as recently as 1998, and he has no authority to say whether or not we're going to obey the laws that, uh, you know, the um, people in South Carolina make. This is an expression of the people of South Carolina. I don't know if you can pull up that article from yesterday, Rick, uh, from the Daily Gamecock. It's really interesting, and you might go online and, and, and read it. I'm proud of my son willing to take a stance because people today just want to you know, do whatever they want to do rather than to do what the law says. And so, you know, I was speaking to one of our representatives. I said, well, you guys obviously make these laws, but they're meaningless because what people are basically saying is, you know, I can, um, I can choose whether or not I'm going to obey a law. And, and, you know, basic to any culture, you know, functioning well is to honor and recognize the rule of law. But when we don't even know what our Constitution says, and now we're giving authority to the executive branch that they have no authority to take under our Constitution and bylaws. That, and, but people don't, most people, most Americans have never even read the Constitution of the United States. It's just like we have gross biblical ignorance. We have gross historical ignorance in this nation. They have no idea what it says. And so the president can do whatever he wants. And if he wants to make this a monarch, he can. Um, and it seems like that's the direction we're moving in. And so my son, of course, just wants, you know, South Carolina students to have the opportunity to to actually learn the Constitution because that's what the law mandates and dictates. And it says that you can't graduate unless you show a proficiency of it. And in the same statute, I mean, it couldn't be clearer than it's written that if university officials refuse to obey this, then it's a reason for their dismissal. So anyway, uh, it's something to think about. Um, I'm, I'm off on a little tangent there, but uh, for anyone who's interested, go to the Daily Gamecock, uh, yesterday's edition, um, and, and if you will pull it up, uh, you can read the article and you'll understand the statute uh, that some students like my son is fighting for here in universities in the state of South Carolina. Let's go to our next question. Yeah, I just wanted to add one more thing that was, uh, I had a discussion with Jameson and found it really interesting that he's taking this platform. His hope is that as people, you know, begin to read the founding father's work, what our country was based on, that you'll see just how much 
uh, God was present in the creation of this of these documents and in the creation of this country, of course. Charles Finney, who became a great evangelist earlier in our nation's history, became a believer just by reading the founding fathers of our nation. Uh, just by reading the founding fathers of our nation because they so extensively quoted scripture uh, that he was one to Christ. It was, it was just amazing. And sometimes people rank on the founding fathers and say, well, you know, they were racist and this and that. And so Jameson yesterday was just verbally walking me through the 52 signers of the Declaration of Independence and, and how all these guys were against slavery and where they stood and the things that they were trying to do. And, you know, we've been sold a bill of goods that we're no longer a Christian nation and that we need to, you know, reformat America. Um, and we don't. Uh, we, we have a constitution and bylaws that was basically established right out of the word of God itself. Anyway, let's go to the next question. All right. Someone in a listener's Bible study has stated three different times that John Mark was the son of Mary Magdalene. Is this true? And if not, where did the idea come from? Or if true, where is it noted in the Bible? Well, number one, we don't know that Mary Magdalene was ever married or got married. She was married from Magdala, a town on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so she's called Mary Magdalene. Um, we don't know that she was married. Um, some people think that seven demons were cast out of the, her because uh, two passages are conflated together and they're actually separate events. So a lot of things have been said about this woman. Um, and John Mark, uh, no, we, 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 we have no idea uh, who that we do not, excuse me, we know specifically that Mary Magdalene certainly was not his mother. We don't even know that she was married. And so there, there are, I've never even heard that tradition before. Um, and certainly there are some traditions that have been taught in the history of the church uh, that um, may or may not be true. Those that enter into the word of God um, and that are affirmed by scripture are accurate traditions. But those that are outside of scripture and have no final affirmation, then it's, um, it's, it's no more permissible in a court of law than in God's court of law than hearsay. Because unless a tradition can be substantiated by the Bible specifically, then it's going above and beyond the scripture. We do know that John Mark, of course, was Barnabas's nephew. We know that kind of physical connection, but we don't know who his mother was. And we do not, and, you know, and I, I think it's very presumptuous to say that Mary Magdalene was his mother. I suppose it's possible that, uh, but, but I think it's very doubtful. Um, and there's nothing in the Bible that would teach that. All right, very good. A uh, caller would like you to uh, uh, explain what Jesus meant in Matthew 7 when he said, judge not. Um, judge not, lest you be judged. Uh, he's dealing in the context not with, uh, and by the way, I suppose this, this is one of the favorite verses that especially unbelievers like to use, um, in reference to your stating anything of, um, with moral authority. And so if you say, well, something is, is evil or wrong, they'll say, judge not, lest you be judged, when the truth is God gives us the ability to make value judgments. Um, in, uh, in, in when Paul writes to Corinthians, for instance, he, he tells them that there's some immoral people among you and you need to go deal with them. 
um, when God says, you know, homosexuality is a sin or adultery is a sin or premarital sex is a sin, you're not judging a person to say that that is evil because that's something that God has already made a judgment over. And so John, uh, Matthew chapter seven and verse one needs to be linked to John chapter seven and verse 24. And in John chapter seven and verse 24, Jesus said, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So Jesus there commands us to judge. In fact, there's an assumption that we can make certain judgments, even in the context of Matthew chapter seven, because he's going to say in Matthew seven and verse six, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. He's not talking about literal dogs um, and hogs, but he is talking about um, the fact that there are judgments we need to make in the distribution of the Bible. And there's a time to withhold uh, the gospel pearl because there's such antagonism towards it. That's a judgment you make. That's a decision you make of the mind and you make it based on what God has revealed in scripture. What is a unfair judgment is when we judge according to appearance or when we start picking something out of someone else's life and we totally ignore what is in our own life. So I have a sermon on this. I think I called it hogs, logs, and dogs once I preached and you might want to listen to it. And I go through a lot of passages that deal with this whole subject. Good question. Let's go to the next one. Well, our next uh, caller wants to know, it's actually a question left over from last week. How can one person know for sure that they are saved? Well, one, it starts with theology. Sometimes, you know, you ask a person, are you certain you'd go to heaven? How sure are you on a scale of zero to 100? And sometimes they say, well, I'm not sure, or, or no one can know, or I'm 50%. Well, again, based on the word of God, you could say, well, they're not yet Christians. When I spoke to someone last week and they said, well, no one can know, pastor. No one can be sure. Then that, the mouth speaks what's in the heart. That reveals right off just by theology that they do not even know what the gospel is. Do you have to know the gospel in order to, to be saved? Yes. Understanding of the gospel that we're sinners, bankrupt, unable to save ourselves. And the gospel is defined in the Bible, not as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but according to 1 Corinthians 15 is the fact that Christ died, was buried, and was raised, and that his death, burial, and resurrection is, is able to save us. That is the gospel. And if a person doesn't understand that theology, then they don't know what it is that God is asking them to believe that they must believe in order to be saved. So that's a starting point. And then it goes on from there. Uh, if a person has truly made the decision, there'll be evidence of it, a changed life because they're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Uh, they'll love the brethren. By this, we know we've passed out of death into life. We, we have an affinity for the people of God, just like you have an affinity for your natural family members. You'll have an affinity for those who are born again. Uh, the things of God become important to you. The Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you've become a child of God. Go to my handout, Back to Basics on Assurance of Salvation, and this will really help you. We're out of time. Have a great day.